I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On, where we go deeper with the author of an important op-ed. My guest this week is Roya Hakakian. She arrived in America from Iran in the 1980s as a Jewish refugee. Following the attack this month at the synagogue in Colleyville, Texas, Roya explained how events like this shake immigrants especially hard because they expect, however naively, not to be haunted by the very forces that drove them from their home countries. After Colleyville and the increase in anti-Semitic attacks generally, I worry that America's version of democracy, with its celebration of individuality and group distinction, could be hampering a new generation from uniting in a common vision. A democracy, it appears to me, is only as good as the imagination of its citizens, who must vigilantly envision a life without it, and thus vigilantly guard it, which in turn will help us fight bigotry. Roya writes Persian poetry and teaches at Yale. We talked this week by Zoom from her home in New Haven, Connecticut. Here's our conversation. Hi, Roya. Hi, James. It's nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you. I will, uh, I'll say that you're one of my favorite writers on Iran and, and have been for a long time because oh. you've really helped me over the years appreciate the distinctions between kind of the regime in Tehran and the ominous, scary things about the government and the, the people of the country uh, oh. with, with your beautiful writings. Thank you so much for saying that. You know, I guess we all write in solitude. So I'm always shocked when people say they've read me. I'm like, really? <laughs> How did it get to you? you know, it's, uh, I mean, it, you know, logically that obviously it, it gets out there, but you know, it's always, uh, it's always a surprise. So thank you for saying that. How did you feel when you first heard about that hostage situation at, at the synagogue? Obviously it comes on the heels of so much other anti-Semitic violence in our country. Of course, it's uh, stunning, but it was the third or fourth time in a very short period of time, maybe over the span of three or four years, that an anti-Semitic act had hit national news. And I remember the first time I was glued to the television watching the protesters in Charlottesville walking with tiki torches, saying, uh, Jews will not replace us. And, and I remember hearing those words and saying, who, what, who wants to replace whom? And, it was, and, and all of a sudden, the first thought that went through my mind was that I'm so glad my father is dead. Because, you know, my father's greatest mission in life was to get himself and get the rest of his family to a safe place where people whom he loved wouldn't have or wouldn't be exposed to the anti-Semitic experiences that he had been exposed to. And so, you know, he had moved from this tiny village in Iran and he had moved to Tehran. He had gotten a master's degree in education. It was a huge deal for a Jewish boy who used to have rocks thrown at him on the way to school. And so he was really, really pleased with himself by 1979, at which point there were a series of 
other anti-Semitic events, which I'm sure uh, we'll talk about. You share two anecdotes in your op-ed about swastikas. When you were a child in Tehran in the revolutionary days of 1978, you opened your courtyard door one afternoon to show your father uh, this black symbol that you'd never seen before, a swastika scrawled on the alley wall besides the words, Jews get lost. You also tell a story about a swastika being found in the boys' bathroom at your son's prep school in New England. And you make the point that with each of these attacks on Jewish people in the United States, you wonder why the anti-Semitism that you experienced in Iran didn't affect you as much as it does today. Why is that? It's really interesting. I've been thinking about it continuously over the last several years. And I always have to qualify the statement by saying that I'm not saying there was no anti-Semitism in Iran. Obviously, there was anti-Semitism in Iran. My father experienced it. My mother experienced it. But by the time I was growing up, Iran was was a completely uh, different place in many ways from the place where my mother and father had grown up. And so I had not seen or experienced any anti-Semitism by the time I was 12, which is the year that the Iranian revolution broke out. And so for the first time in my life, I saw a slogan scrawled across the wall, which faced our courtyard door, and it said, Jews get lost. And then there was this symbol, as you explain. And and I had never seen it, so I, I went inside, I brought my father out, and my father peeked at it, didn't say anything. He just shut the door and said, you know, let's go inside. And then we went in and he explained to me even though I think he was far more affected and shocked than I was, what it was. And what was really stunning was that my own children, my own two sons, at the very same age, found a swastika in the boys' bathroom of their New England, you know, fancy school. And I think what I had not expected was for the swastika here in the United States at the kids' school to be treated like a fire drill. It was a procedure that they followed. You know, they called the ADL. They sent out a school-wide email. They had a morning meeting. They had a school-wide meeting. They talked about it, you know, that it was bad, that it was, you know, a sign of bigotry. And then they brought out a Holocaust survivor who talked about her own experience. And and by the time my son got home, I said, so how was this? And he said, nobody could believe she could walk and talk. And I said, but, you know, what else? And I realized that none of the kids were left with anything truly memorable, not truly a takeaway lesson, other than a swastika was a bad sign. It was evil and you know, we we shouldn't do it. But there was nothing that would enable them to combat the tropes, right? The kids should have walked away knowing that Jews are just another group of people, that they're like everybody else, and that they have contributed a great deal to the American society and, you know, something to celebrate, something to be joyous about as opposed to simply gloomy. And and going back to Iran, I think what really made my own experience very distinct 
from this was that the overwhelming presence of a a national enemy or a national problem somehow brought us all together. And so the anti-Semitism that I was experiencing was being spewed, was being circulated by the very people whom everybody else hated too. And so it created, in some bizarre way, a sense of unity. You call it a silver lining in living under authoritarianism, in that it can inspire people to forego prejudices and unite in shared misery. The anecdote that you have in your piece, that they had segregated water fountains for Muslim and Jewish students. The kids just ignored the signs, saying they had to use separate water fountains and and used whichever water fountain was most convenient. Exactly. I always bring up the example of traffic lights, which isn't very different from the, you know, the uh, issue of the water fountains. Because, you know, here, when we see a red light, we all know and we all agree that we're going to come to a stop. For better or worse, we have all agreed that these laws, for the most part, protect us and they're good. But in a place like Iran, you try to disobey all the time because it becomes a way of announcing your disenchantment, your protest. So if the water fountain has a sign that says, you know, Muslims only, you disobey. If the red light is at an intersection, if you can, you go through. And that's why the very same rules, the very same ideas transferred across the borders into authoritarian places no longer hold. And so we're lucky that we go through green and stop at red. And that's pretty magical if you have seen that the very same signs wouldn't work in other places. I love that you call it magical. You wrote a book last year and the paperback version of the book was released this week. It's called A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. It's being marketed as sort of a love letter to America. And, you know, you cover in the book some of things like that, other metaphors, other you know, funny, uniquely American things. With what you're talking about with democracy, I'd love to discuss your sort of nuanced views on assimilation. You write that ultimately assimilation creates the sense of national solidarity, but also part of the reason why that possibility happens in America is because America allows us to be, in your case, Jewish, Iranian, Middle Eastern, and other possibilities. America doesn't fight our individualities. America doesn't fight our heritage. America doesn't require that we abandon who we are. Do you believe in the concept of American exceptionalism? It it does feel like this is unique and, and part of the magic of what has made the country succeed? Yes, I do. I, I still do, even though these days we all have reasons to believe that um, parts of it are failing us and that we should protect it and guard it more than ever before because it's come under attack. So I see all that. And yet, I think there is a lot to celebrate and cherish. And, you know, having been a refugee in Europe, I also had the experience of being all of those things, Iranian, Jewish, Middle Eastern, going from country to country until we finally settled in one place where we could apply for our asylum. And in none of those places 
did I ever feel that I was really welcome. Of course, I didn't know the language, but, you know, as soon as we arrived in New York, I blended in. I, I vanished into the landscape. And, you know, people, if they asked me where I was from, it was only because I had a weird accent. But it wasn't because I looked differently from other people because everybody looked as I did. And then, you know, there was a Greek festival. There was, there was an Iranian Pride Day, for God's sake. Something I hadn't seen in Iran. You know, I had, I had seen the celebration of, you know, the, the former Shah, his birthday. But I had never seen a national Pride Day for Iranians. You know, I'd seen the New Year. So it, it blew my mind to see people came out with floats with Iranian flags hanging around it. And, and all these things make us be joyous over who we are. But the beauty of that joy is that we're also together this one other thing, that we all belong to this bigger family of America. And that America makes our distinctions possible. If it fails to bring us all together over a vision, then we're simply disjointed. We're no longer a United States. And then in some bizarre way, we become less equipped than our adversaries in dealing with situations like the one in Colleyville, like January 6th, all these national incidents. It is only in sharing and having a common vision that we can tackle these national crises. And without it, we become less than our adversaries, which I find to be entirely tragic. We'll be right back after a short break. I remembered a, a lead that you wrote on a piece you wrote for us back in 2018, and I went in and pulled it. You recalled arriving in the United States as a refugee in 1985. You were 19. You know, you, you talked about kind of blending in and disappearing in New York, but you'd come of age during the Iranian Revolution of 1979 and its aftermath in school, uh, we chanted death to America every morning before the start of class. And you wrote, I had no love for the regime in Tehran, but I was also plenty uneasy with or about America. Uh, and, and you wrote that in a piece about refugees. Mm -hmm. And uh, and obviously, we're watching this current batch of refugees come from all over the world, but Afghanistan. What do you make as you watch these next generations of refugees seeking asylum here? And how can we be welcoming in a way that sort of strengthens our democracy? Mm -hmm. Well, um, what a wonderful question. And uh, you surprised me again. You know, somebody <laughs> reads my stuff. Uh, <laughs> so on the evening that I left Iran, a friend came over and gave me a book called The City of Yellow Devil. It was a book by Maxim Gorky, the Soviet writer, about the evils of New York City. And this was sort of the last thing that somebody was handing me in trying to warn me that I was going to be living in the imperialist America and I should watch out for the things that could happen to me because I would no longer be whoever I was. And so this is to say that I came with so much trepidation about America, about being here, as if being an adolescent wasn't bad enough 
that I had a, I had all this anxiety about everything else. Right, right. Yes. It's hard enough to be a teenager. <laughs> exactly. Um, about, you know, will I be influenced and how should I lead my life in order to remain committed to my own roots, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think over the years, the very first thing that converted me and, and has turned me into this person who now has written, you know, what you call a love letter to America, it was this simple fact that when I thought that I was at my worst, and probably I was, the doors were open and I was taken in. And I think if there's a path to creating diehard patriots, uh, I mean, by diehard patriots, I don't mean to say that people can't, who, who are not capable of looking at us critically, they are, but they're also dedicated to the national project. If there's a way of creating them, it is this. It is allowing people like the new generation of Afghans to come in. It is allowing people like me to come and experience that notion of generosity, that you're welcome even though you yourself might think that you have very little or nothing to offer. And I think we don't simply contribute by bringing our past experiences. We also remind the non-immigrant Americans that this democracy may be imperfect, but it's worth fighting for. One of the things us non-immigrants have learned over the last six years is the fragility of democracy. You, as a child, watched the Shah fall and watched the revolution. And for those of us who grew up here, I think we took for granted how fragile a lot of these things that we've been talking about really are. Your bio notes that you've spoken to readers about your books at venues ranging from high schools on Native American reservations to the U.S. Capitol and the CIA. Having grown up chanting death to America every morning before the start of class, what was your trip to Langley like? It was wonderful in the way it disappointed me. Uh, uh, <laughs> no James <because> Bond. <laughs> no James Bond. I mean, I, I was picked up from the train station by someone who looked really exhausted and, and uh, seemed entirely like he could use a couple of weeks off. And then it had been years that I hadn't seen a single person open a car door with a key. And I thought, this is the CIA guy who picks me up and he doesn't have a clicker, you know. So, you know, I was waiting for the Aston Martin or, you know, something like that. I gave three talks consecutively about my first and second book at the time. And then I was asked to read poetry, which, you know, we both have to agree. It's pretty stunning if we were to think about our own fantasies of, you know, what the CIA is and, and who works there. It was pretty wonderful. And I was pleasantly surprised that in my short encounter, how normal it was and how people were genuinely curious about things that had nothing to do with intelligence or information. To wrap up our conversation, I want to go back to your identity as Jewish. It does seem like when hate crimes occur in other ethnic, religious, and racial communities, there's this outpouring of support and check-ins from friends. 
But for Jewish communities, the response feels a bit less. I'm wondering if this is something you've experienced at all personally. You know, I've given talks at the CIA, but also um, Native American reservations. And and one experience I had on, on a reservation in Montana was that the kids in high school had been assigned my memoir because the English teacher had thought that they would find elements in common between their own histories and my history as a person who had lost a community, whose community was on the verge of extinction. On the evening that I arrived on the reservation, the school principal picked me up, took me to dinner and said, everything is great. We're really looking forward to your talk. I just wanted to let you know that um, before you arrived, we had to disinvite a few students. And I said, why? And he said, because these were the students uh, who had used slurs in referring to you. And we thought it was very offensive. So we barred them from attending. And I said, I'm the guest. I should decide who comes to my talk. Uh, and I want you to invite everybody. So the next morning, about an hour and a half before the start of my talk, I went to every classroom. I stopped by. And I said that everybody was welcome and that I was in fact Jewish and that I didn't have horns and I was going to show them that I didn't have a tail either, uh, only if they showed up to my talk. This is all going back to the piece to say that I'm not sure we know how to handle anti-Semitism. I'm not sure we know whether the good thing is to say, you know, you people should be kept out or anti-Semitism is terrible, people were uh, gassed to death in Germany, so let's not do it. I think there is a ground in between where we need to cultivate a sense of affection, a sense of humanity about who this community is and what these people are, and that they're like the rest of us and everything they've done uh, in this country, good and bad, just so we become human. And I think, you know, in both encounters... Uh, this is what I'm missing. And, you know, and going back to your final question, I think we had a commemoration for the Tree of Life in Pittsburgh. And um, I remember for the first time in many years at our Jewish Community Center, I saw, you know, ministers from local churches showing up and various imams, and it was wonderful. But I think there is somehow less effort toward objecting to these acts than there is to other acts of bigotry. And in the case of my kids' school, I think some of the uh, Jewish families in the school themselves thought, you know, let it go, you know, we should, we should just move on. And, and so I think, and I can say for, for sure that um, the families in the school themselves didn't know, the Jewish families didn't know um, how much they wanted to insist on, on the school doing something about it or um, whether they just wanted it to be forgotten and move on. Hmm. Right. It is, uh, it's another good reminder that we're, we're all different and unique and you can't <laughs> group everyone together and we're all uh, Americans who have different perspectives. And we all need that education, even, even if we're Jewish, you know, because, because I think we can just as much be uncertain about how much is enough or what is too much and what is it that we need to hear 
all that I think is is just uh, a whole lot of education and information that's missing from from the bigger conversation. Absolutely. Well, Roya, thank you so much for talking about this. Oh, thank you for having me on. And it was such a pleasure to meet you. Likewise. Police officers in England on Wednesday arrested two more men in connection with what happened at the Colleyville Synagogue. The hostage taker, who was 44, traveled to the United States from Northern England just before the new year. He was killed during the rescue operation that helped his four hostages escape unharmed. The men arrested this week were taken into custody in Manchester as part of a sprawling investigation by counterterrorism officers from the region who say they're working closely with authorities in the United States. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock with editing from Allison Michaels, Michael Duffy, and Renita Jablonski. This episode was mixed by Veronica Simonetti. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. The show notes include a link to Roya Hakakian's op-ed. If you liked this episode, please leave us a rating and review. It helps new listeners find us. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next week with another episode because there's always more to say. <laughs>